Yes, I want you to hear me in your head, not just in your ears. Can you oh, hear me? I just want to be in your heart. That's no, okay, all. honey, you are in my heart. Check, check, I am here with the person of my heart, and we are going to talk about sleep. So it turns out that we spend about a third of our life, sometimes of our life it's more than that, and sometimes it's less, but we spend a lot of our time in sleep. And it affects every single part of our health, our wellness, our point of view. So we're going to be talking about the seven domains of sleep and helping us do this today. Joining us in the studio is Dr. Christopher Jones. Dr. Jones is a neurologist and a board-certified sleep specialist and the former director of the University of Utah Sleep-Wake Center. I really like the fact that when they named the sleep center, they use both words because people who have problems in the sleep domain have problems getting to sleep and then they have problems staying awake. So, Dr. Jones, welcome to the Seven Domains of Women's Health Show. Thank you. In the interest of full disclosure, Dr. Jones has been watching me sleep for almost 50 years. Now, what has that been like, Chris? Do Wonderful. I snore? Wonderful. Oh, you said it so nicely. And do I snore? No, not that I recall. No, that was the appropriate thing to say. <laughs> <laughs> Would you tell me if I snored? Sure. Yes, I definitely would, because oh. snoring can be a clue that your sleep quality is not what it should be, and people who don't have optimal sleep quality can get irritable. Oh, and what, how would that affect you, honey? It would reflect my relationship with an <laughs> irritable woman. Okay. Well, I don't want to be irritable, and I am, I consider myself a great sleeper. You are, as a general rule. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Okay, but let's get down to a a question. Do all animals sleep? When we think of animals, uh, we automatically assume that we're talking about creatures that have nervous systems. Just like if you talk about animals that run around on the ground, you, you think about dogs and cats and Little boys. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) But anything that moves purposefully, that makes decisions, it seems, has a nervous system. So you talked to me a little bit about how there are some worms that have some kind something that looks like sleep. Yes, nematode worms have a very primitive, simple nervous system. There aren't very many nerves in a nematode worm, but there are a few. And there are times in the day when those neurons are less active and times when they're not. Right. And so these are underground. So it's not like it's a daytime, nighttime thing. It's they just need to shut down. There are some animals like elephants. Elephants may sleep just two hours a day. Now, maybe they need to keep eating because they're big and they just eat vegetables. If you're that big and you didn't eat cheese or chocolate chip cookies and you're just eating (laughs) vegetables, maybe you have to graze a lot. Uh, Giraffes and horses actually sleep very little, but they may doze. Um, So there are other animals that sleep and their sleep patterns fit in with their evolutionary needs or their daily, not so much evolutionary needs, the needs of their day-to-day behavior. So if you're a prey animal, if somebody comes to hunt you and eat you, then you may sleep a little less all at once. Yes, and if you see a horse down, all the way down on the ground, he's either dead or he's in uh, REM sleep. 
Right. So horses don't sleep much, but during REM sleep, which is the dreaming stage or REM sleep, rapid eye movement sleep, there's um, something called, we call it paralysis, but it's not exactly paralysis. There's muscle inhibition. When yes. Horses can stand for much of their sleep, but during REM, they lay down. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Why do we need to sleep? If it's so important that we spend a third of our life doing it and all animals do it, why bother? Because uh, wakefulness is incredibly important, but it's hard to maintain wakefulness if you haven't had some neuronal restoration. The nerve cells in your brain need to recover, and the the toxic metabolic uh, compounds that are generated by a, a very cellular active, very very active brain cells, then they need a time to flush out the toxic metabolic waste products that have been built up during a day, or if you're a night owl person, a lot of thinking and doing. So our brains are probably one of the most metabolically active parts of our body. Most cells in our body have a time during a day or during an hour when they are not so busy, when they actually take that time to clean themselves out and dump metabolic waste products. But when we're awake, our brains are very, very busy and they can't do that. So it looks like this isn't some new science really that during a part of our sleep, the really very important part of our sleep, we actually do clean our brain out. Yes, and the intensity of sleep can be measured with brain waves. Uh-huh. And it's shown that in sleep, the very big, slow brain waves are associated with very deep, non dreaming sleep. That's what we call deep sleep or stage four sleep. And that's the sleep that. When you are sleep deprived, it's what you tend to get first. It's what we need to live, that stage of sleep. Yes, the the deep non-dreaming first. It isn't until way into the second half of the sleep schedule that you start seeing little episodes of REM and then more and more until you wake up. Well, let's talk about the REM sleep because the REM sleep is pretty active, isn't it? Active brain waves. A lot's going on during REM sleep. Oh, absolutely. How that gets manifested as dreams, I have no idea. Right. <laughs> but clearly there's some consciousness-like activity, that we and we can remember those dreams. So there is some metabolic cost even to... Um, Dreaming sleep. Right. And babies in utero, you can watch their eye roll. So Mm. it looks like they're REMing, even though I don't know whether they're dreaming. And there's some suggestion that maybe REM sleep in infants and in babies allows them to practice some motor programs. Yes, definitely. And and, uh, an awake mother will see uh, twitching of the extremities, the hands or feet, or, or there may be even some vocalizations. Uh-huh. In so that stage of sleep. As if they're practicing some things that they'll use later, mm-hmm. maybe. So we've got deep sleep and we've got REM sleep. And then mm-hmm. there's some transitional kinds of sleep in between that. What's drowsiness? That's what happens in the medical student auditorium. Right. <laughs> I'd like to say that none of my students ever were drowsy or fell asleep during my lectures, but I know they did. During the years when I was working over 100 hours a week and was on every other night call, I know that when I sat down for an afternoon lecture... After lunch, it was deadly. I just could not stay awake if I sat down. You know, I was very sleep deprived, but if I was awake and doing things, 
I think I kept my personality intact. And I know mm-hmm. that I operated well. But if you gave me a minute to sit down in a quiet place, I was unconscious. Right. And that going to sleep easily is another way of suggesting that the non-dreaming sleep is really important and we really need to stop doing anything and just get some sleep. Well, I think about people who are driving on interstates and it's a little boring and it's pretty straight and they're sleep deprived. Just as I did fall asleep in an auditorium listening to a lecture, they might be falling asleep at the wheel if they're drowsy. Yes, unfortunately, drowsy driving accidents do happen. It's not just intoxication, for example. Well, I've seen videos of babies, you know, YouTube has way too many videos, but you can watch videos of babies that are trying to eat, but they're sleepy and they blink a lot. They nod. So nodding off is when your head starts to drop and then you pull it back up. And then you blink a little bit, winking, blinking, and And nod nod. one night. (laughs) So people start blinking more and their head nods. And those are signs of a drowsy state. The things that happen when we sleep include the deep sleep that we need. And our immune system, we heal actually during a deep sleep. So we have different kinds of activities linked to deep sleep. And interestingly enough, during sleep, our temperature, most people have their temperature that's linked to their sleep. So we drop almost a degree of heat during sleep, and that may affect your sleep, affect your bed partner. Some women have hot flushes at night, but we also have temperature instability during REM sleep. Yes, in addition to the twitching uh, of REM sleep and the dreaming, there's also a loss, uh, much more loss of uh, muscle tone, especially pertinent in the throat where you need uh, to keep your airway open. (laughs) So people snore in REM? Well, worse than that is that you're less sensitive to your oxygen levels going down. So now this is something that men do much more frighteningly than women. Women might snore a little here and there and they're back into non-REM sleep and Their oxygens are great, but guys, their oxygen levels, we've seen patients in the sleep center, they drop to 80% saturation, 70% saturation, 65% saturation. Oh my gosh, that's practically dead. Well, that's why we have sleep technicians (laughs) (laughs) to put a little nasal oxygen, nasal cannula on. So we always, you know, assume that we're going to go come to sleep back. and we're going to come back. This <laughs> magical thing's going to happen. We're going to disappear and then we're going to come back. There are some people with profound sleep apnea who get so hypoxic at night that they actually, their heart develops an arrhythmia. They can die in their sleep because their oxygen level was so low. We really don't see it very often because the patient never comes back. Right. Uh, so don't so, they don't come back to the sleep lab. And right. in the sleep lab, you wake them up when they get so desaturated. Yeah. But we know that one of the risks of severe sleep apnea, I mean, the risks of severe sleep apnea include, and this is people who stop breathing, they're snoring or they're not oxygenating, or they actually stop breathing. Sleep apnea means you're asleep, but you're not Breathing apnea means not breathing. So there are people whose not breathing lasts for long enough that they can develop an arrhythmia. Their heart can be so hypoxic and they can die in their sleep. And that's one of the risks of untreated sleep apnea. 
is yes. dying in your sleep. And yes. and yeah. that's is a sleep disturbance. Sleep apnea is a sleep disturbance. And we usually wake when we after we go to sleep, but some people with severe sleep apnea don't wake up. And then of course, then there are people who either have a stroke or have a heart attack or have a brain aneurysm. There are things still going on. And in some situations, particularly during REM sleep, blood pressure can be quite variable. If people are hypertensive and they're going through this variable blood pressure time during their sleep, they may actually have a stroke or they may bleed into their brain and not wake up. One of my favorite authors died in her sleep uh, from a brain aneurysm, and she was in her 50s, Ellen Malloy, a Mm. beautiful, wonderful, fit, strong, creative, and courageous woman. Didn't wake up because something happened when she sleep. But in general, not waking up is usually a function that's related to sleep, is related to this sleep apnea. And it's why we encourage people who are gasping, whose bed partners notice that they gasp in the middle of the night, that we encourage those people to seek an evaluation by a sleep specialist because we need those people to get treated. And sometimes it's very subtle uh, central apnea is without the gasping and loud snoring, but still it's mostly men (laughs) who, who do this and just don't have a regular frequent breathing pattern and gradually the oxygen level drops enough. Right. Well, we sleep a third of our life and it's a pretty interesting and active process whether you're snoring or whether you're up all night. But often, because we're social, what other people's sleep affects us. So snoring is one of the biggest social interrupters, I think, of the sleep domain is that one person is snoring and the other person is wide awake thinking evil thoughts. There are some animals that sleep with half their brain. Now, that's been known in birds that migrate huge distances and are in the air. They can't afford to drop out of the air in the ocean. So they sleep with half their brain. And dolphins sleep with half their brain. So half their brain is awake and half their brain is asleep. And it's been suggested that humans in stressful situations, like sleeping in the sleep lab for the first time, actually may sleep with half their brain. So we have this term that we use, we sleep with one eye open. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that's a phrase that we use in, at least in American literature or Western literature, is sleeping, I was sleeping with one eye open. And that may actually happen in people who are anxious in a new situation um, or moms with new babies. They can hear a tiny little whimper and they really, part of their brain is asleep, but another part of their brain is awake. Monitoring. It's monitoring. So Maternal they, monitoring. Uh, yeah, monitor on all the time. <laughs> yeah. So even if women are in a sleep lab and you can show that they slept some of the time, their impression is they didn't sleep at all because part of their brain was awake, even though part of their brain was asleep. Right. It's much easier to remember little episodes of wakefulness than episodes of sleep. <laughs> right, right. Exactly. <laughs> um, can you sleep with both eyes open? Is that possible? Not that I know of, but... (laughs) I don't think so. I don't think so. (laughs) But I could be crazy, but I don't think so. We we would pick that up in a polysomnographic sleep study. I don't think we ever saw... There are times, though, let's, let's actually talk about that. You can't. There are kids... There's a time in childhood development at about two when kids have light night terrors. When the mom hears the kids screaming and you run into the room... And the kid's eye is open and they are screaming and you pick them up and you give them a hug and tell them they're going to be okay. 
but they keep screaming and they are not there. And some sleep studies suggest that they actually are asleep with their eyes open. These are night terrors. The night terror. That's actually the technical term. Night terror. Mm-hmm. Those kids are, it sounds like they're terrified. Their face looks like they're terrified. Their eyes are wide open, but they do not respond to calming very well. They can't hear you or see you. They're asleep. Is it stage four? What sleep do night terrors arise out of? Do you know? I think that that's uh, non-REM and it's a blood curdling scream that comes out. Yeah. Yeah, I remember you didn't wake up, by the way, honey, but I remember when our son had night terrors and he didn't have too many, but it was very impressive to go in to a child who normally soothes easily to a little cuddle, who was just eyes open, but he was not there. Possessed. Oh, right. He was, my God, he was possessed. But eventually, you know, eventually I had to shake him a little to wake him up. And then mm-hmm. then he would look at me and he'd just cry. And then he wasn't screaming anymore. Then he would just settle down and go back to sleep. But you missed that. Do you remember that? No. Oh, okay, of course you don't. <laughs> <laughs> well, would you consider night terrors a parasomnia? Sure. What's a Bes- parasomnia? Para beside insomnia sleep. So it's something that's right next to sleep. So, so sleepwalking, some... for example, they're asleep to an extent, but the sleepwalker has no memory of it and is not making very good judgment about where they're going to walk. For example, I had a parent who caught his child as the child was leaning over the second floor balcony. Oh, my God. Oh, oh my God. <laughs> So that's another situation where they are asleep, but their eyes are open. Mm-hmm. Well, they're sleep eating, and I know women do more sleep eating than yes, men. Yes, definitely that. I swear, that's my problem. Those cookies, those <laughs> cookies that disappeared, I don't remember eating them. Actually, I don't sleep eat, but, but there are some women who sleep eat. So in a sleep state, they go and eat silly things out of the refrigerator. Yeah, sometimes it's embarrassing. Yeah. Like a couple of tablespoons of butter. They never go for the leftover kale saddle, I'll bet. No. You don't see <laughs> somebody coming back to bed with kale stuck between their teeth. Probably not. People have sleep kicking, you know, so that might someone might get kicked in bed in the middle of the night if someone has either restless legs, you know, mm-hmm. where their legs just seem to move on their own. So those kinds of behaviors can be very difficult in the social domain for the bed partner. But so there are behaviors. So people might do things when they're in a sleep state with their eyes open, but their brain is not, their forebrain, the part of their brain that actually controls your behavior is not awake. Right, and I did it when I was a kid, much to the enjoyment of my brother. Oh, no. Laughing hysterically. Well, I will tell you that during your internship, when you were in a particularly stressful rotation at the Massachusetts General Hospital, you did some sleep talking. You Uh thought thought Uh I was your nurse. And you were upset that I had not started an IV on this patient. So you were kind of yelling at me to start the IV on the patient. I'm trying to pat your hand gently and tell you everything's going to be fine. And then you're asking me why I haven't started this IV yet. And I thought, oh, God, I'm glad I'm not on your service right now. But there you go. For people who are cognitively engaged, they consider sleeping a waste of time. They just think, I don't want to sleep. It's time when I can't study. It's time when I can't work. But actually, sleep is fundamental 
to cognitive excellence, to cognitive function. And I want to talk a little bit about the Arctic squirrel, because you told me this story about the Arctic squirrel. It's this little squirrel who buries himself underground in the Arctic and goes into hibernation and lowers the body temperature down to almost freezing, and his brain waves are flat. He looks like he or she is in a coma. But every couple weeks, this little squirrel actually spends a lot of energy to warm up and wake up so that then they can go to sleep, so that they can clean up their brain. So when they wake up, they don't wake up and go hunting for food because there's no food. It's the middle of winter. They wake up and they go to sleep. This is a very important uh, distinction you're making between coma and deep sleep. They really are different. Oh, right. So I remember an anesthesiologist told me that he was going to put me to sleep, and I looked at him and I said, I hope not. You are going to put me in a coma. There you go. There <laughs> you go. It's not sleep. <laughs> right, right, right. So is sleep necessary? Is good sleep necessary for memory? Actually, uh, good uh, memory recall is probably one of the most important things that sleep does, which is to go through all the memories of the last few days or weeks or maybe even longer, but typically days or weeks, that they're not going to make that mistake again. So sleep, um, during sleep, you prune memories that aren't important to you. And yes. So you are and it's allowed... typically over the past week or so. Yeah. And sleep is important for cleaning up the brain, for getting rid of toxins. Yes, there's a fascinating uh, science article on the spinal fluid flushing out toxins, specifically in the deeper stages of sleep. So there's some suggestion that sleep, that good sleep helps protect the brain against uh, Alzheimer's disease. People who sleep well have a lower rate of developing Alzheimer's and people who have a history of poor sleep. But it could be that people who have poor sleep, their brain isn't that happy anyway. Do you need a happy brain? Do you need a healthy brain to sleep? Yes, you do. <laughs> uh, I know that people as they um, either have Parkinson's and move toward dementia or they have Alzheimer's and move toward dementia, often they don't sleep very well. They wander, they they just can't organize their sleep as much. Yes, it, it takes a, a good brain to make good sleep. Yeah, so we should take care of our brains, yeah. Yes. Well, people with insomnia are so, they're so frustrated, they're so sad, they're so depressed and Do women have more insomnia than men? Yes, they do. Statistically, that is true. Men can certainly have it, but for the most part, the interest and the uh, investigations have all been uh, about females. I don't know why this is, whether this is biologic or sociologic, but it could be that men put their troubles to bed, as it were. They go to bed and they deal with it tomorrow, and women may ruminate a little bit more. They worry more. And that might keep them asleep more because it's very hard to sleep if you're worried. And if you're worried about sleep, you can't go to sleep. Right. It's a double dilemma. And maybe even this sleeping with half a brain, um, this business about being partly awake. So if you've got a teenager who's supposed to be in at 10, coming in from a date or something, and they're not home yet, or maybe they were going to be in at midnight, you may not be able to go to sleep until the kids are tucked in. I'm only as happy as my least happy child. If my kids aren't tucked in, I can't go to sleep yet. So that kind of attention to the social domain might make it harder for people to sleep. And it's important to note that there are many single dads and there are many men uh, who are very, very attuned to the social domain. 
I think you and I bore and bred one and has insomnia because he's constantly working over things in the social domain all the time. Mm -hmm. So there are certainly men who can spend a lot of time in the social domain and there are women who can put it aside and like Scarlett O'Hara, tomorrow is another day I'm going to. (laughs) Well, I've had women who have insomnia and say, you know, I borrowed some of my friend's sleeping pills and it really worked for me. Will you prescribe them for me? This is a loaded topic. We actually had a death here. Took one tablet of a benzodiazepine, quote, anti-anxiety, or you can also, quote, call it sleeping pill. And she got addicted. And then she died. Yeah. Well, I'm thinking about Michael Jackson. And, oh, how, there you go. And he mm-hmm. struggled, struggled, struggled with sleep. He was kind of an activated guy and was using sleeping aids and then he couldn't sleep and then found a physician who actually sedated and put him into a coma with drugs that we use for anesthesia. And during that, one of those episodes, he died. So what do you think about sleeping pills? Did you, have Uh, you ever prescribed sleeping pills? No. As a sleep doctor? No. A whole career in sleep medicine? No. (laughs) Right. Partly that's because we here at the University uh, Health has, or at least I hope she's still there, <laughs> a fantastic sleep psychologist. A good sleep psychologist is uh, vital to any really good sleep center. Well, insomnia is usually the domain of the sleep psychologist. It's rare that, I mean, there are reasons to stay up because you have physical pain or your bladder is full all the time or you've got a big prostate and it leans on your bladder or there's really noisy outside and you can't sleep. But people with chronic insomnia The approaches tend to be behavioral. In fact, I think there is research that says that cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, CBTI, is more effective over the long run than sleeping pills in helping people get back to a pattern of good sleep. There are clearly behaviors, there are habits that we consider good for sleep, but there are people who make decisions about their work for financial reasons that completely conflict with their sleep. And these are people who work night shifts or who work swing shifts. So financially, people often make decisions that actually can be a very adverse effect on their sleep. Shift work is really hard on sleep. And then there are those of us who as physicians who worked every, you know, we're on call, we were, were in the hospital every other to every third night and we're up all night. And it wasn't a financial decision, but it was, clearly where our heart was. We wanted to be there. We didn't want to sleep because we were missing out on some really important cases and doing important things. Um, I think we've tried to change the culture in training medical residents, surgical residents, OBGYN residents, so that they actually have a little bit more sleep time. But I think there's definitely a conflict for people who want to be awake for their work or their training and end up really disturbing their sleep patterns. Well, there are times in the environmental domain that the environment interrupts good sleep or it makes it better. I'm a great sleeper in the winter when it's dark and cold. So having a cold room is often a cool room is is good for sleeping, having a dark room. But I think about places where, let's say in Scandinavia, where it is light during June and May and June and July, it's light all the time. What do people do 
when it's light all the time. <laughs> they must get a lot done. I don't know <laughs> how they, how do they do it. I think they go it? a little crazy. Uh, one, one nice thing about non-dreaming sleep, it doesn't hold to the same extent for dreaming sleep, but there is a severity that you can attach to, to sleepiness, more or less sleepiness. It's possible to fall asleep in the middle of the day. If, <laughs> if, if you're sleepy enough. <laughs> if you're really sleepy enough, yeah. There's a movie with Robin Williams called Insomnia, where he's a, a detective or something. He has to go up to Alaska to hunt some evildoer. And he can't sleep and he gets a little crazier and a little, it's only Robin Williams can get crazy. He gets crazier and crazier because he can't sleep because the light's on all the time. So he keeps working all the time. So I think that creating a space where it's cool and it's really hot, hard in a really hot summer to make a cool bedroom and dark so that you can actually easily sleep. It's easier to sleep when it's not too hot, not too cold, not too dark. This bed is too hard. This bed is too soft. This bed is just right. Goldilocks and the three sleep disturbances. Yeah. There are, you know, it's a line from Hamlet that says to sleep perchance to dream. There's this sense that this other space that we're in when we're sleeping, which is kind of mystical to us, we seem to close our eyes and we're someplace else. We've gone to another zip code without having to travel. There's this other place that is magical, and some people feel that their dreams are quite spiritual. There is a cultural norm of people saying their prayers before bed. Now, that it could be just because people who are activated, when you get up in the morning, you've got stuff to do. And although there are many cultures that pray throughout the day, multiple times through the day, at least in European cultures, we tend to pray before uh, we go to bed. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. That's a little prayer that many of us learn growing up. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. So this concept of praying before we sleep. And I wonder, so we one of our sleep psychologists for people who have had nightmares, actually encourages people to try to have happy thoughts or to think to think calming thoughts before they go to bed, whether you're counting sheep or doing just structured breathing or trying to think happy thoughts before they go to sleep because she feels that you can direct your brain a little bit. In fact, we use it cognitively to solve problems. We talk about it sleeping on it, you know, if you want to sleep on it. And there are some examples of famous scientists who solved difficult problems in math or in physics. They thought that it was insoluble and they went to sleep and they woke up and they had solved it. So you can kind of direct some of your brain's work. There are some people who suggest this, not everyone. But if you direct your work spiritually with prayers before you go to sleep, maybe you'll have a more spiritual sleep. Whether or not you are religious or you're spiritual without a uh, religious format, there is the concept of letting your brain doing some work while you're asleep. And if you can direct how your brain is going to work, thinking some kinds of thoughts before sleep that calm your brain down a little bit more so that you, A, will sleep a little bit more easily. This, as you mentioned, fighting about money is a good way to not go to sleep at night. 
Mm-hmm. So, Amen. <laughs> so thank you very much for coming in to talk to us about sleep. You've been interested in it for as long as I've known you pretty much. So it's been most of your life you've been thinking about daytime, nighttime, things that go on, go bump in the night, things people do during the day. And of course, your 25-year career as director of the Sleep Wake Center. So thanks for coming in to do this with us. Well, thanks for having me. We're going to end with a little haiku. This is the Seven Domains of Sleep Haiku. Eyes open. Eyes closed. Your brain does magic in sleep, dreaming in color. Thanks for joining us in the Seven Domains of Women's Health.